0: intelligence gathering, terrorist threats, and cute dogs? Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I'm your host, Brendan Howard, and today we cover serious topics, as well as a beloved dog who does serious work. We're talking to R.C. Miles CPP about the ethics and legality of intelligence gathering. Then we cross the ocean to speak to Victoria and Kemdilem Ogbuahi in Nigeria about the big terror threats worldwide. And finally, we catch up with Rich Simons, whose therapy dog Heidi brings joy to college students at Yale University, but also solace to witnesses of crime and those grieving. And first, RC Miles CPP, Global Director of Safety and Security for the nonprofit AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which operates all over the world. He starts us off with a quick explanation of the wheel of the intelligence cycle, and where it can go wrong. Hint, it's at the beginning.
1: So the intelligence cyclist is as we refer to it as the wheel is, is well known for those who work in intelligence fields. And it comes down to targeting collection, storage, analysis, reporting, and retargeting. It forms a wheel. And the thing is, is that when you look at the situation regarding extremism, a number of organizations, groups, and some of my colleagues have been working in this for quite some time and understand this wheel. But for the average or your traditional physical security person who's being asked these questions, it's kind of somewhat new to them, but it's not new. The process really isn't new in terms of business principles sort of the plan do act and check in you know, the, the cycle that we've all learned in various business efficiency models it works on the same mindset the first thing you have to do is to define what it is you want to know or who wants to know it and what they want to know and that's comes under targeting and to be candid that's the most important element if you start out with bad targeting you're no matter what you collect you're going to be off it's basically you're missing the target altogether you're not getting what's needed that is about the conversation we told we, uh, when we talk about the executives and their expectations. It starts with targeting.
0: Is that a calibration with the security professional getting together with the executives and finding out what do they think they want? And then does that mean the security professional is responsible for going back and figuring out what of this stuff can we actually get? And how much of the stuff are we allowed to get? And how much can I relay to the executives in the end?
1: I would say yes to all of those. So you start with a conversation, and usually the conversations are very broad, it's depending on your level. So if you're talking to the, the, like I often am doing, I'm talking to people who are in the C-suite. They they want just broad information. Sometimes they want specifics, but most times they're looking for information that can help them make decisions. And, and to a certain extent, there's an, a known known and a known unknown thing. They don't really know exactly what they want. So you have to be able to tease out of them the direction they're looking for in many ways it's similar to what we do when we're working with workplace violence situations often people will report in workplace violence yeah I don't think I don't think anything will happen but I just want somebody to know it's a classic line of security personnel. yeah we're a little concerned I'm not really of a concern I don't think anything will happen but I feel like I should tell somebody the part everything before I think I should tell somebody you just need to cut away and not make, pay attention to they wouldn't be talking to you if they weren't concerned. And they may not want to acknowledge that because it might be too much for them. You know, people don't like to admit that trouble. Same thing with executives. A lot of times they don't want to acknowledge what it is that's bothering them because they're not sure that they're like everybody else. They don't want to seem like they're being paranoid. They don't want to be they don't want to cause panic, especially the higher level, the higher levels in the organization. Just asking questions can have a ripple effect downstream. So they're looking, a lot of times they don't know exactly what it is they're after. It's your job to ferret that out, just kind of tease it out of them with questions. Um, and that's the most important thing is asking the right questions, getting them what kind of information you're looking for, how detailed do you want to be here? They're not complicated questions. It's just like interviewing, you a type of interview you would do with any investigation. It's just focusing on intelligence.
0: So you're saying they could be coming on purpose or not thinking about it, so soft. Well, I'm starting to think about this and you might be like, well, that probably means it's low priority. This is not something to focus on. But you're saying, no, no, no. If they've mentioned it, it's already an issue even if they don't see it.
1: That's correct. With executives, if they mention it, you have to assume it's an issue. They don't mention things that aren't important to them, especially in the areas of security. So this, you yeah, know, I'd, I'd like to know more about what's going on with these you know hate groups or something of that nature what's going on with with crime in this area it's not just a cursory you know give me a a briefing on it they are typically there's something there because if you think about it until recently anyway executives weren't spending that much time focused on security now they really are because of the current situations we face well it seems like everywhere internationally and domestically but they normally don't spend a lot of time thinking about this, and you don't want them to. Who wants to do business in an area where they're constantly worried about somebody being hurt or something being stolen? That's a tough environment for business professionals to, to want to be involved in. So if your executives are talking to you about this. There's probably something there, and it may come as soft. That's normally what I would expect to have. Um, Unless something is triggered by an event, I would expect it to be coming at you pretty softly. I mean, yeah, I'd like to know more about this. Well, there's a concern about this. You can also tell the source of the concern um, through the course of the conversation. Sometimes, especially at the C-suite level, and it's not just me that's seen this, but my colleagues have, there's a concern that's raised by by a member of the board of directors, okay? And so you have to be prepared to ferret out what the concern is and who the audience is. I always assume I'm giving a report for the person asking, but I also assume that the report, whatever report we produce has to be good enough to where if somebody pulls it into a courtroom or it's read by somebody else, it makes sense because in the current environment, that's always a possibility.
0: Okay. Now that sounds potentially harrowing. So if someone is unfamiliar, doesn't do this a lot, What are some very basic or maybe an example you could give about the kind of intelligence that you might go out to look for, but might not be legal to get and hold on to, or might not be ethical to go get it, even though they ask for it?
1: I once uh, attended a briefing from a former head of the CIA who said that everything we learned in the fifth grade with regards to right and wrong, it becomes even more important when you're at the top. So if your fifth grader idea of right and wrong says this is wrong, you probably should listen to it. Because there's no way I can tell you what's lawful or unlawful given the number of countries you can operate in. For example, we operate in 45 countries around the world, and those laws are very diverse. Even with expert expert knowledge and people who know what they're talking about, it can be very difficult to navigate this sort of minefield. So I always start with what are the values of your organization and what are the values of you as a person? That will drive everything. From there forward. So, if you're looking at it that way, the real issue is okay, what's right and wrong here? Now, business ethical principles are often applied in the, in, the, in the context of business requirements. You know, operating the closer you are to the area, the more likely you are to know what's lawful and not lawful. So, you want to avoid those investigative techniques or intelligence techniques, which are very similar, by the way, um, that are going to get you into trouble. Anything that's going to violate privacy, uh, anything that's going to, for example, violate company policies, just you can't do that inside your company, you don't do that outside your company. That's a good place to start anything that's going to raise questions about personal privacy the the classic example is dumpster diving you've got a person you're suspicious of so you so investigator goes out and does dumpster diving collects all the trash and they go through it it's a great source of information everybody knows it's perfectly lawful but in some organizations they would find that just repugnant okay you have to adapt to your culture organization to start with and then in some places um some cases you've seen organizations engage in flat out near criminal behavior or criminal behavior, break-ins to find information, things of that nature. You just don't want to do that. And there are people who are willing to cross ethical and possibly legal lines in order to get the information. And sometimes the pressures can be pretty intense to get that information, and they'll find ways to circumvent it, third-party cutouts, using someone else to do the dirty work, so to speak. Um, That doesn't absolve you of of, of the responsibility Additionally, if it becomes well-known, which it often does, you're going to be facing a real problem.
0: Does this mean um, if you're dipping into some new pool that you're not familiar with that, oh, you need to t- talk to legal? Or very typically at organizations, legal isn't, aren't themselves familiar with all the legalities of whatever this intelligence gathering might entail?
1: Talking to legal about legal restrictions um, with information is always a good idea. However, typically these things, a lot of these, these types of, of investigations will have a certain amount of need-to-know attached to them. And so you may actually get instructions that say, I, I want this kept very quiet, in which case you're limited as to who you can talk to. And you need to be very clear, who do you want on the need-to-know list? We actually have what we call a need-to-know list. Okay, who needs to know this information? And if it's not on the need-to-know list, you just don't tell them. Um, yeah, you can discuss it if you, you shouldn't. Um, because that that needs to be decided. In this case, you know, probably when we're talking at the very highest level by some le- senior leadership. They need to make that decision. They decide when they're going to share that information. There are a lot of factors. We as security professionals, a lot of things going on that we can't see that are business related, that are operationally related. You know, we, our goal is to is to provide the sort of information in this case that they need to help them make informed decisions. We don't see everything else that's going on around it, and we probably won't.
0: Okay, so if a business executive mentions something that's bothering them, even if they soft pedal the request to you, the security professional, it's likely a thing. And check with your local laws, your company's values, and your own moral compass when deciding what to gather and how to share it. Okay, so you're thinking about the intelligence you might want to gather. Well, Victoria Nkemdelem Obuehi follows threats closely as Senior Risk and Resilience Manager at Coca-Cola HBC in Nigeria. She is out of the gate here telling everybody working internationally what terrorists and extremists everyone should have on their radar. Islamic State, the Balochistan Liberation Army in Pakistan, Islamic State, Boko Haram, and on and on. So there are
2: a whole lot of them too look out for, but we should never at any point underestimate the powers of ISIS in particular. I will say that Al-Qaeda for now has been decimated to some extent. So we are beginning to see ISIS that is pushing more and more of its forces, its powers, its support to the African sub-region because this area has become a conflict zone. And if you look at how terrorists operate, they find safe heavens within conflict zones. And so the reason they are pushing and targeting African region is the fact that we are beginning to see the escalation of the conflict in Syria, where they had held sway for such a long time now. So, and we, we are beginning to see different factions of as ISIS in different um, regions of the world.
0: So for organizations or groups that are not in the areas, the conflict zones themselves, or where these terror groups originate, is there something else they need to worry about? The instability created by these terrorist groups, is it international or does it really feel localized in those areas?
2: So sometimes um, it depends on your threats, level assessment okay the terrorism threat level assessment and when i do um, such assessments usually i like i love to use the mi15 uk's mi15 framework as my template okay um because it's it's very simple yet very comprehensive and when you when you look at um the threat assessment from low to critical okay so as professionals um Whether you envisage a sort of attack, whether you envisage any kind of surprise from any region, whether localized or internationally, you have to always, always do your threat assessment. Okay? So in doing your threat assessments, some of the things that you'll be looking at is, for instance, what are the likelihoods? What are the possibilities that terror attack would happen or would occur within your areas of operation okay so when you do your assessment you are doing your assessment based on for instance available intelligence sometimes it's difficult for security professionals because the intelligence at our disposal are usually not verifiable sometimes they are verifiable but vague okay So, and sometimes you have to walk from multiple sources to substantiate whatever it is you are looking at. So intelligence in itself is no longer sufficient. So you are going to walk beyond the intelligence at your disposition to looking at the history of these terror groups. What are those things that motivate them? What are their actual intentions? So because their motivation and intention would tell you whether they have the capabilities to move out of their comfort zone and want to explore whatever it is they do outside the region of their usual operation. So it depends on their motivation, depends on their intention, depends on their capabilities. And all of this you cannot understand if you have not done a thorough research. Have they ever attacked any location before? Why did they attacked the location. What was the mood of the attack? What were the techniques deployed in the attack? What was the casualty rate in the attack? So you look at all of these things in your terrorism threat assessment, okay? Some acts of terrorism can take years to plan as we, as we are beginning to hear in the, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, okay? So we're beginning to understand that Hamas What Hamas deployed on the 6th of October against Israelis was not planned in 24 hours, neither was it planned in one month. It took a very long process a very long time to plan. So we we need to understand their modus operandi, how thorough they are in planning, so that we don't just go and sleep and expect that and nothing will happen. They have not done anything in the last two years. And because they haven't done anything in the last two years, they are likely not to do anything. So when we have done all of these assessments, we begin to know whether the threats level is low. Okay, if it's low, we can just put it there that, yeah, it's low. What that means is that um, the possibility of attack is very unlikely. Okay, if we decide to put it at moderate, what we are saying is that um, it is possible actually, but it's unlikely. Okay, we are saying, yeah, it could happen, but it's very unlikely. And if if we say it's substantial, we are saying that, yes, um, there's a likelihood that such attack could happen, and if we want to move from um, substantial to um, severe, what we are saying is that it is highly probable that an attack could happen. So when we move from severe to critical, we are saying that it's highly probable and it's going to happen in the nearest future. So this is just the basic way to do our assessment because you have to put. The data, with the numbers, and yeah, we have to do it in a very objective um, manner. It's not something you just sit down and imagine and sit down and do subjectively or sit down and do with a um, lot of biases in your mind, okay? So we just have to put the numbers there so that when you speak to your business leaders, you are speaking based on the indices or the indicators out there.
0: Is there anything happening that you've seen in paying close attention to some of these groups in the past year or years? Is there something that's shifted that people in security need to know about when it comes to how these terror groups are attacking or affecting organizations? In other words, have any of their tactics changed?
2: Okay, so in terms of tactics, nothing has changed. Nothing much has changed. It's just that we are beginning to see that some of them are beginning to attempt to deploy the use of drones. In terms of tactics, nothing much has changed. And nevertheless, we need to pay attention to the fact that while some countries are getting it right in terms of result, others are still struggling. If we look at um, the current um, statistics um, as reported by the Global Terrorism Index for 2023, we see that for the first time since 2011, the United States scored very favourably in terms of its responses to um, terrorism, and we see um, Canada, for instance, um, doing so well um, because, um, for the from January to December 2022, it didn't record any death from terrorism. Okay, and that's the first time it's happening, um in Canada since 20. 20- 13. And we see the same thing replicate itself in the United Kingdom. Um, since 2014, we saw for the first time in 2022 that there was no vET from terrorist attacks. So what that means is that we can just simply infer that the measures they've put in place are effective. And so, yeah, the measures are effective, that's my personal view, but they have to keep fine-tuning these measures, they have to keep reviewing because the iterative process is a circle. You cannot just go sit down and say, yeah, you've gotten it right, and okay, we just need to go sleep.
0: I'm sure you've heard that before. Things are better, you're doing the right thing, but the watch never ends. And now for something completely different. Officer Rich Simons with Yale University Public Safety is never alone on duty. He was interviewed for a recent security management article about his partner, a facility dog, Heidi, who has thousands of Instagram followers, by the way. Simons estimates that he and Heidi went on more than 700 visits and events the past year where this yellow Labrador retriever accepted pets, listened to victims of crime tell their stories, and spent time with children and relatives of people who've passed. And it all started during COVID in summer 2020 with training done virtually and in person with dogs through the Puppies Behind Bars program at an all-female prison. It was transformative for Simons, he says, and it was all in order to work with his new canine partner, I warn you, you're gonna be
3: jealous. Even the way you talk to the dog. When I first went to um training, I was, you know, I had been a cop for for a long time. And it was more like sit down stay. And you know, they told me, Rich, nice guy, voted best in the class to read dogs. You got this unbelievable. But if you really um you have to change your um your verbal, your emotional, your physical, you know, how you talk to the dog. And you know, I went to bed that night. And I said, you know what? Yes, they were right. A hundred and ten percent right. And, you know, I came back the next day and it was a new me and how I talked. And, you know, it was like a double they, they I mean they, they did a double take and said, well, What happened?
0: What did you change overnight? You're like you took in the feedback and you're like, I understand what they're saying, so I'm gonna change this.
3: Well, you know, I've done community based policing a long time and it was my, you know. It wasn't my demeanor. It was just how I had to be happier. You know, how I had to be more upbeat because I knew that and it was true because it took me into where I am today because unfortunately, you can't go, you have to be somewhat upbeat. You have to be somewhat spiritually for people. You have to um, really care. You have to care. So I really started caring more. I started listening more. I started, you know, just everything around my, my, myself, my home, my life. I changed myself to think, make things better. And it's rewarded me with better relationships, being a better police officer, making a better dog handler. It's just, and the rewards have been, keep coming with Heidi doing so well um, with the community and people see it. They said, Heidi's good, but you guys are a team and a team together is wonderful. You guys commend each other. You work off each other. She's the way she looks at you, the way you look at her, you know, if you leave the room, she looks, she waits there. She stays there with your command. I've never seen a dog look at people, someone like the Heidi looks at you.
0: Is Heidi the first dog you took home from the program? No. Okay. What happened with the first dog?
3: So the first dog, his, the dog's name was Vance. Okay. The dog was commands, everything, loved me like nothing. Wouldn't leave my side. But unfortunately, that's not what I needed. I needed a dog to love me and love everybody else. <laughs> and that would have been, he would, Vance would have been a great pet. And a matter of fact, he's an excellent pet right now for the uh, former governor of New York state, um, Governor Pataki, you know, he got Vance and it's just, he's a wonderful dog. I see him at Yale you know, football games all the time. He's just amazing, but he, it wasn't, it wasn't his, he couldn't do the job and it happens. So, you know, it was actually a defining moment because, you know, I'm just starting with this program. My chiefs were, you know, back then were, you know, you know, I don't know about this. And I had to go to one of my chiefs and uh, I went to my chief, Chief Campbell. And I said, chief, I said, you know, um, we got a little bit of a problem. Dog doesn't seem to be working out. And he goes, oh, he goes, all right. He goes, well, what are you going to do? What is your plan? And so puppies behind bars, the owner and founder said, we have another dog. I, this is the dog. And to his credit, he goes, Rich, you know, sometimes even officers, they don't make it. They don't. It just isn't for them. So let's see what happens. And it was the hardest part about the whole thing was when I went to bring Vance to leave him there and get Heidi. Um, It was in upstate Millerton, New York. I live in Connecticut. I drove all the way up there. Took me about an hour to get there. My GPS is shooting me all over the place. All of a sudden, you're here. I took a right. I looked to the right, and there's a gate in the middle of nowhere. They opened up the gate, and they and they met me there, and they said, you got to let Vance go. You have to let him go and run because there was a big pond. And I said, no, I don't want to. He goes, and they took the leash from me and, and let him run because he'd been in that area before and let him run. And who did I see come walking around? Is Heidi. No. And, that you know, they said, this is Heidi, and we did a few commands. And um, I won't tell you that it wasn't, you know, it was tough for both of us at first, but we learned to grow so well to, you know, we're best friends. Not having Heidi with me, it's like missing an arm or a leg.
0: Will you tell me a little bit about how, what you see in Heidi that makes people connect to her and she connects to them?
3: Heidi's personality. She's 55 pounds of personality, um, caring. Heidi's comfort, support, and wellness, and empathy and all. I've never seen a dog feel for someone that has an issue. The other day, I was at a meet and greet, and a student was just having a bad day. And Heidi does this call, Tell Me a Story. And Tell Me a Story means that she goes up on someone's lap, and she allows them to hug them, and she puts her head on their shoulder or arm. And I saw the student just put her head on Heidi, and Heidi put her head on her, and she was weeping. And she just said, you know, I'm just having a, you know, the finals aren't going good. Um, I'm just having a bad day. And it was just unbelievable. Um, and, you know, another thing that Heidi has is the ability to be sweet and kind and just allow people to see Heidi as she is. She loves to play. She loves to, you know, she, she loves the affection. She loves let people hold her. She allows people to, and you know some some of the dogs are you know they do more tricks and everything. Heidi does. Um, tell me a story. If she did nothing else, that would be wonderful. <laughs> you know that sitting on someone's lap, I either get people crying, laughing and laughter and such joy, or can we do this? When can I see Heidi? The number one thing I get when after people see Heidi is they've made my, Heidi made my day, and when can I see her again? <laughs> I mean, I must have got it 10 times today. And one of the things that Heidi does that most, a lot of the girls don't, she allows me to um, put her bandanas on her, put glasses on her, put hats on her, and allows, you know, she just loves that, that part where people see her and they love it. She has, um, has a little problem with slippery floors and, you know, she gets a little nervous. And I didn't know what to do, so I found these like socks, the hospital sock things, and I put them on her feet. Problem was solved. And I said, Wow. And my wife and I don't look and I said, Why don't we get her Christmas socks and pink <laughs> socks? And and oh my God, people love it. They love those type of things. They love those type of they love Heidi when she's running with in the water going swimming in the ocean, having a She's 55 pounds, and she carries a 60-pound stick running with it. People love that about her, her enthusiasm, how she runs. I don't know how it happens, but she—and she's just amazing. She has the innate ability to know when someone really needs to be the attention and feel the empathy, feel the sorrow for someone, and she allows them. I went to a, um, a vigil at Yale and, you know, for the Hamas and Israel, and one of the doctors came out. And I, he was crying. He couldn't, he was just emotionally draining and he saw Heidi and he just hugging Heidi. And it was like, she knew she went limp on him. Just let him think. And I, and I was taken back by it. I'm holding him and holding Heidi and he's just weeping and he's gone. And, you know, after that, it was around a lot of people and people came up and said, I've never seen anything like this before. He goes, that is unbelievable. And, that's what we do, and so we when we have protests or any type of thing, Heidi isn't the type of dog that goes, you know, stands outside and people are screaming and everything. That's not her. I come in after, and people don't care what side you're on. They want to know that Heidi's there for them, and that's the thing. Heidi doesn't care who you are. She's there for your for your comfort, support, and wellness and empathy, and that you know that's an amazing you know, this is a wonderful program. Puppies behind bars are built. You know, we started out with in 2019 with um, with one dog in Connecticut. Now we have 14. Wow, we're the biggest contingent of puppies behind bars dogs in the country, and um, it's growing. We started out, you know, with um, Yale was the first in the nation at Ivy League University Police Department, and that was the thing I said to you know my chiefs in Yale. I said, "Listen, you guys like to be the first of everything," and it took me 27 years to really get them and. and And, you know, it was worth every year.
0: That's right. Public safety canine units are not all about tracking, explosives detection, or apprehension. Some of them do the trick, tell me a story, and sit in your lap. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, R.C. Miles CPP, Victoria Nkemdilim Ogbuehi, and Rich Simons, If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, please share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. You can find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.